0: and welcome to the Disability Education and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms, expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics, as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. Today's episode features Afir Romera. Afir is a teaching and research assistant in the mathematics department at Western Michigan University, where he is also a mathematics education second-year PhD student. He graduated in 2018 with a BA in mathematics education from Francisco Morazon National Pedagogical University, which resides in his native country, Honduras. During his bachelor's degree, he participated in a student exchange for 10 months at Uppsala University in Sweden. Later, he completed his Master's of Science in Pure Mathematics at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez campus. Nowadays, he is a member of the Empowerment and Equity Research Project, which is a collaboration between Western Michigan University, University of Maryland, and Phoenix Public High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan, to do professional development that promotes inclusive environments in mathematics classrooms at the K-12 level. His mathematics education research focus on equity during the teaching learning process towards students with disabilities and or exceptional math talent was influenced by his experience being a student and mathematics teacher with cerebral palsy.
1: Well, Afir, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, the Disability Education Site podcast. We are so thrilled to have you here. We're thrilled to also celebrate your birthday, which occurred two days ago. Uh, so uh, happy birthday again, Afir, and, and hopefully we, we're going to have a celebratory type of a conversation uh, today. So uh, the theme of, of our conversation is Latinx Desporas in supporting mathematics teachers to challenge intersectional oppression. So to begin, uh, we would like, fear you to share a little bit about uh, yourself as and in, in perhaps like a personal story related to your disability journey.
2: Well, thank you so much, Pablo and Alexis. Um, and thank you, all the people that is around this um, magnificent project? Well, I am from Honduras. Uh, I did born in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital of Honduras. I have a disability called cerebral palsy. Uh, well, the specific name is Infantile Cerebral Palsy and it was um, promoted by some event that, of course, when I got birth. Oh, so, for example, in that time, uh, my mom was ready to be, uh, to give birth, I don't know what is the pronunciation in English, but through Ciccery?
3: Yeah, the, um, how do you say that in, in, in English, Paolo, the, the, the Caesar process, the, the process of giving birth? Uh, through an operation where they open up the abdomen and the cesarean section, yeah, the c- yeah. section. Yeah. right? The cesarean section.
2: Yeah. So, I I was planning to go birth in that process, but at the moment, the doctors wanted to do the opposite thing. So I was got birth, uh normally, and in my case, I was a little big baby. Which uh implies that my mom uh struggled uh at the moment of good worth in my case. Uh the they uh forced me by nailing hands uh in this process and for that reason, uh there is a moment in which you need to go out out from the womb of my mom of the mom and I couldn't uh go out at the moment, and in this period, I was losing oxygen in my brain. So I needed to stay nine days in intensive care after this, trying to be recovered for this process. Um, and I was the first baby my mom got, uh, had. So for that reason, she was like uh, an expert <laughs> in this uh, process. Uh, and the doctors didn't say anything about it. They didn't say that a problem of course just came to me, to my parents. Uh, and at the time, at the I mean, after several months, uh, my mom who at the time was studying um a special education in Honduras, I started to see some uh, behavior in myself, in my moments in my coordination abilities that I, I was not doing what is normal in babies. I'm talking about sit down, I'm talking about rolling, or, or having this strength in the body for walking or standing up, running at the time. So after she saw that, uh, they started to see a, a diagnosis in hospitals in rehabilitation centers and many um diagnoses were given but the official one was cerebral palsy um even i was uh three five years old uh i went to mexico because my mom started uh the master's degree on there she developed the master's degree on there and with my dad, we went to that place. And at, the, at, that, at that country, uh, many exams were developed to me. And doctors were, like, very impressed because I could start work at the age of three years, which was, like, very impressive for a baby having several pulses. Even the statistics of 2003 says that uh, the 95% of people around the world that has separate parties cannot walk. They need to be in a wheelchair or something for like a mobilization. And I was far at the moment of the 5% that could walk. So it was very um, impressed. And yeah, I have started like develop my skills uh, because cerebral palsy is a, is not something about uh, the cognitive part, but it's about uh, motor skills and coordination. So in my whole life, I have learned to develop um, each day more skills. So it has been a good a good time living <laughs> and overcoming limitations. And with the, with the help of my family, um, I am a believer person. So, with the help of that, uh, I have uh, changed to the uh, position I have now.
3: Thank you, um, Ofir. I really appreciate this story because I think it helps us dive into our next question, which uh, connects to the issue of diasporas, uh, Latinx diasporas. We, everybody talks here about the African diaspora or even the Asian diasporas, but very few people think of landmark uh, transnationalism as a diasporic process. Um, and in many cases, um, these diasporas have to do with, um, disability situations where, uh, people are looking for opportunities, better opportunities for their kids with disabilities, you know, challenges around the kind of treatments they, they seek for, um, their, their folks with disabilities. And, and of course, um, in some cases you get Latinx folks who don't move at all but like the the folks in New Mexico or southern Colorado uh, who are latins by birth in terms of their heritage but they they never experience any any diasporic process except for um the combination of colonizing processes they underwent sometimes, sometimes in combination with indigenous groups like what happened to the pueblos Pueblo tribes. Um, um, But um, I just want to emphasize the complexities of what each country in Latin America has in terms of resources and also the diversity of experiences of what it means to be Latinx in Latin America or in the United States, as I said, sometimes without moving from the United States. Uh, there is a lot of Latin ex folks who were born here and have been here for 300, 400 years. In fact, uh, the people in Santa Fe have been in the United States even before the United States existed with the 13 colonies. Um, so uh, I'd like to ask you a question around the sense of diaspora and the uniqueness of Honduras in terms of where, where you see Honduras being in the map of cultural perceptions towards disability and, um, you know, how that impacts, uh, resources in general, but especially, uh, what happens with teachers, um, in, in their interactions with folks with disabilities.
2: And yeah. Uh... Um, I think that is an interesting behavior maybe I mean since my perspectives in the United States, if we try to to think about the what has been like more focused in terms of equity issues or or discrimination or these type of things uh has been more i don't know maybe I can be born in the United States but it seems to be more about race. But in Honduras has been more about disability. It's like disability has been some issue. I mean, the disability studies have been developed since the last, I think, 30 years, and they are working too hard. I can say that because my mom, as I told you, is a special educator. And uh, many programs have been created, and I am going to do a brief uh, of the uh, benefits or good points that disability students have uh, given to the country. So especially schools and programs have been created, and it seems that the language has been more inclusive around the perceptions with disability. Because I remember when I was like a baby, five years, I was in kinder, and many people when I fell down said, oh, please help him because he is sick. He is a little sick. And this terminology that uh, when you are, I mean, being a child, uh, you start believing that you are sick. Because you have not this ability to think about your your perception, your self-perception. Mm-hmm. But now I think that people have been more conscious about it. So people are trying to you not know, say people with disability Ah, uh, sorry, sick people or something like that, but people with disability and also uh, Maybe in Spanish can make some difference more than English, but they don't say disabled people or personas discapacitadas. So is that translation in Spanish? But they say people with disabilities, personas con discapacidad. And this terminology has been given by uh, especially educators, people that, that work in disability studies, because they want to focus uh, referring to people with disability as the humanity of the people with disability instead of the disability itself. Because it, they believe that disability is part of the humanity of person. So I cannot say, OK, for five minutes, I can leave cerebral palsy. And I leave cerebral palsy in the corner. And then I can take it out, right? So uh, they believe that it's part of the humanity. And for that reason, um, they have to, they have developed this uh, beneficial things, but in the other parts, I mean, especially educators are not in all the schools, which implies that uh, there are many schools who has not someone that is trying to guarantee this equity uh, promotion uh, in the classroom, and many teachers have, like, 50 students, 40 students, and they struggle thinking that some uh, student with disability can come to that classroom. So they are in this social uh, model of disability, as we know in disability studies, but they don't feel prepared for it. And uh, since they don't feel prepared, they try to avoid the experience. So I have listened uh, many cases saying I would like that my that my student can be in a regular classroom. However, the teachers said that they have not the enough knowledge or the enough uh, preparation or the school has no any preparation for it, and they are recommending me to put my my child in a special school. So it is good to have in a special schools. However, uh, in many cases, the student cannot be prepared for the life, right? For the diversity of students. So um, there is a lot of work to do uh, in there. And this is uh, the role of the disability studies and is part of our work. Right,
3: Um, there, there are two things that occurred to me as a response to your question, which is kind of generating more questions. One is, I mean, one of the consequences of that, um, and I think this is probably uh, applicable to many global South countries, is that because some general educators don't want to take these students with disabilities, many of them are deprived from education uh in in the strict sense i for example in venezuela was able to go to a boarding school for the blind only because there was a single school in the whole country that didn't require uniforms um i remember um trying to go to another school in caracas and my family couldn't afford their uniforms, the initial bureaucracy of trying to enter. Um, I think it was about 500 Bolivars in that time in the 1970s, which is more than what a uh, working class person would make in two, three months in those days. Um, So it was a huge amount of money. And I was able to go to this particular um, school that was very much underfunded, but they didn't have requirements of that sort. Um so it, it was it was a tiny opportunity. Uh and without that experience, I, I would probably just have go begging, which was the expectation for most of the blind folks in the time when, when I grew up. Uh blind folks would would just uh beg in the streets or they would sell they called them cuadros sellados these, these uh, horse racing horse racing they were like like little forms that people would fill out but they would come already filled out uh, and sold by the blind and people had the belief that buying it from the blind would give them some luck to uh, get some money through through these these cuadros sellados or uh, lottery tickets which is uh, also some other experience that many blind folks underwent. The the other route that blind folks would have was with, to become a musician, some kind of street musician, and make some money, you know, doing some gigs here and there. Um, so, I mean, that's one first reaction that I have to to your comment of here. But the other comment that I, I want to make, and this is a question to try to um, challenge you a little bit, um so I I know, for instance, that in Honduras, in the Atlantic coast, you have uh, groups that are very racialized. Um, what's the name for these uh, black indigenous groups that you have in Honduras?
2: Garifunas.
3: That uh, Garifunas, right? They, uh, I mean, imagine that you have somebody with disabilities. It doesn't matter which kind of disability we're talking about. Uh, would you say that? their experience within the schooling system would be different to what, uh, you know, other mestizos or, uh, non-black, uh, populations. Um, somebody was telling me recently about Guatemala, um, that they have a group that they call Ladinos. I don't know if you have that category, which is kind of a, um, yeah, just to distinguish between the purely indigenous folks and the Ladinos, which are, uh, from what I understand, not not really an equivalent to our mestizos in in the rest of Latin America. Um, so I mean, it's, it it sounds like there are some very racialized um, segments of the population. I'm sure that if you mingle mingle that with disabilities, you're likely to face uh, more complex intersectional reactions that that would um emphasize the the inequities that would affect um somebody like you who was in the capital and probably had i mean in the middle of that situation a little bit of privilege if if i if you know what i mean but could you react to that in terms of perceptions and and how you see that connection between race and disability in Honduras uh, playing out.
0: Hi there. While we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. For those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button. Share this podcast with among your network and leave us a comment in positive rating. Your support means so much.
2: I will tell you this, just since my perspective and the experience I have had. I think, as I told you, that there is more. Di- I mean, if if there exists discrimination, there will be more in Honduras focused about the disability than the race, and maybe. Including the example of uh, the Caripunas, I have uh, Garifunas friends uh, here in the United States and Honduras. They have as many uh, ethnicities because in Honduras we have uh, eight ethnicities and each of them may have their own links. So I you put me the example of the peripherals, but I will put another example about the mosquitoes. The mosquitos mm-hmm. is an ethnicity in the east coast of Honduras, which is a jungle. And they have their own language that is mosquitoes. So having their own language when they try to go um to the universities to enter in the higher education, they may struggle a little bit with the uh, language, as we struggle, for example, a little bit coming here, since Spanish cannot be our native language. And in Honduras, many programs, I will tell you, I will tell you that, because I have worked in mathematics, uh, and and I know that there has been some programs trying to develop uh, mathematical teaching skills, not only in Spanish, but in their language to try to, re, to um, provide uh, education quality in their songs. So I think that the language can be one of the most difficult parts they may struggle uh in another Honduras uh, places more than the race uh and I think that is uh the experience I have had because I have had uh classmates uh very different classmates and also mosquitoes and from another lineage, right? Uh, there is a book. Um,
3: uh, there is a thinker from who, who writes a book about Nicaragua. and uh, Myers is the last name. He makes some claims about mosquitoes being sort of cut in the political the political situation in, of Nicaragua, depending on on which which groups they favor politically. Um, how how that changes. The dynamics for whether they they are supported or not supported in terms of programs. Uh, I mean, what one of the things about Latin America that I think it's important for everybody here in the United States to understand, and globally, I think this is true for global South countries in general, is that institutions are are very vulnerable. Um, it's it's easy for um, Countries to change from a decade to another, depending on what sort of political regime it gets uh, installed in, in in the country. And I think that that's another source of volatility for educational purposes, um, for many other purposes. We had in Venezuela uh, a defunding uh, of, of the old university systems that was in place, the uh, autonomous universities. They used to be um, more disconnected from, from government um, initiatives. Because of that, they they went to fund the Bolivarian universities that were invented by uh, the, the folks who were trying to implement what they call the socialism of the 21st century in, in the case of Venezuela. And all of these things are very... Uh, uh, impactful in terms of the volatility of um, what happens to to many of these these nations. How how do you see um, these experiences um, of in influencing what happens to Latins immigrants in the United States in terms of um, their funds of knowledge and in terms of the sort of things that they could bring in terms of this ability that they could help enrich um the discussions and also uh, perhaps even programmatic things that could happen um here in the United States that would be relevant to to this this conversation so that people can bring home all these analytical things that we're bringing up uh, about global south countries and and realizing that these are um elements that are impacting the the educational system here as well.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know how far it's related to what I would say right now, but uh, the culture is something uh, that has structured the perception towards students with disabilities, uh, towards people with disabilities. And uh, I would tell you, um, many professors even here feel, yes, as I told you, the lack of preparation in their undergrad or their uh, pedagogical spaces around disability studies. So they fear uh, and they say, okay, uh, this student with disability, I, how I can trade the student? Uh, how I can guarantee that student is learning. And uh, I think that the start of this, or try to avoid this partly, is to be willing in, to be willing in attend student with disabilities. Uh, To say, okay, maybe I don't know what is, uh, what the disability the student has conceived, but I will enter in the world and I would try to provide the enough conditions or accommodations in order that students can learn, not putting the demand lower, but putting the conditions that student can like uh, develop the, the the cognitive skills. I remember for example, sometimes I was tutoring in the Math Olympics program in Honduras. And I remember one uh, girl was my student, and there was an exam. But uh, since the walls of the room was very wide and very bright, um, she was struggling with the with the bright, with the light, and the bright was uh, made her able to think to 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 Anna that because she was uh, very struggling with the light and I remember that the room has a, a a dark sun with some bricks some brown bricks and there was a little uh, ceiling in that board and I decided to put her in that place. Uh, I mean I didn't know what was the disability she has, but I tried to create some accommodations to him. Even I was not prepared at the time about the disability, and it worked. Yeah. So I think that uh, the willing is important uh, to develop inclusive environments for students with disability, but also this culture about, in my, and in my case, I will tell you, uh, being a man with disabilities. Uh, in Latin America, the population struggle about it. And I have had a few experience, few, few, very few. But uh, I think that if we don't say those experience, and we don't show these issues, so we are not advancing to inclusion, experience in which Uh, People have told me that uh, they doubt uh, that I can develop myself uh, in the academic and professional space because having the disability, they may think that my professors are passing me in the courses because of my disability instead of the abilities one can develop or even in the personal area of my life that I have some, uh, some people who doubt that I can be a, a houseman, man, a, a man of the family, because I cannot do these, uh, motor uh, things that uh, a traditional man, we, if we can say that, can do in the home. So, a perception about uh, masculinity and disability can create a show in some mind, but that's what I am. I mean, I am an independent man, and this is another one. They confuse the definition of uh, independency. They think that independence means that you don't need the help of others but the definition in the dictionary about independency is to be able to provide your own opinion and defend them, that opinion. So, right. uh, I mean, if we can avoid these stereotypes in paradigms, I think we could improve in our environments. Either
1: in education and language. yeah, I I just find it fascinating as you were talking about the Latinx diaspora and and how the you mentioned um, how it, it really depends on the regime so the social political nature and a few you mentioned your experiences uh, growing up in in Honduras and how that has kind of uh, Contrasted in some ways your experiences here in the United States, and you touched in upon um, these these uh, stereotypes, uh, which is something that's really interesting as well. I did want to share a little bit about you know my the 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 other diaspora, which I am have some familiarity with, but not fully, um, and in I guess just a, a surface level familiarity, which is the Asian diaspora, uh, which in some ways some of the asian countries um uh, are considered global south some are not they're global north kind of contexts um and, and if you talk about the east asian countries then you could think about like how education is is traditionally very performative based on the 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 national exam at the, at the at a certain point of time and the pressure to pass that exam and so you know i, I can't help but but you think about like some of my experiences in 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 consulting with some of the asian countries about like we we don't have a special education system here i mean we we focus a lot on 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 students who are uh non-disabled and and getting them to perform uh but yet we we do uh have uh awareness that we need to support our uh disabled students better And now we're turning to the United States and and folks like you who have expertise in special education. And then I worry that a lot of times when they turn to the special education in the U.S., uh, it, it, it worries because I'm very critical of the special education system in the U.S. And that you are then taking the dominant special education system. And so when they ask me, I think they're expecting that dominant system, and are I think very surprised when when I come to say, "Hey, look this." is you don't want to replicate our special education system here to be honest you want to do if you're starting from scratch there are so many great opportunities so this is just to say just kind of to kind of contrast some of the things that are going on in some of the countries that i've been working with and their hesitancy if you will to adopt a more critical approach to special education i think they the stereotypes that we are going to talk about next are are still very prevalent uh, in in Asian country. I think maybe to, to a greater degree, I think just from listening to you to describe because um, being very hyper capitalistic, I I would say uh, some of the countries, they, they don't see any uses if you will, of of disabled folks that, that they are uh, there's, there are even languages as we talk about that, they're very derogatory that describe disabled people. And, and Sandy Ho has written about this um, in the a chapter in the disability visibility book by Alice, Alice Wong. Um, and so for those that want to learn more about it, I I refer um to that work. Uh, so so just, just to kind of briefly mention the the
3: other diaspora here in right. in, in, in the space. And I, I want to mention. Um, I, I invited Paulo to watch this movie. Are, are you familiar with uh, "Un Cuento Chino"? Is the name in Spanish? Um, it's an Argentinian movie. Uh, have you seen it, Ophir? Ah, uh, it, no. I it, it's yeah. I think you should watch it. It's it's an interesting case for the the tendency in Latin America to be also discriminatory uh, against the Asian. Groups and of course in, in many Latin American countries everybody's Chinese. It doesn't matter if if they are you know from Japan or Korea or uh, whichever other country. And and this this particular movie sort of rec- recreates some of those uh, dynamics of racism um, that the the Asians um, would experience in the Latin American context. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting. When it comes to to all these forms of rationalization, and of course, if if that combines with disability, you, you can lead it can lead to inequities. Um. So, Paulo, do you think we have some time to talk a little bit about these stereotypes?
1: Yeah, yeah, we can talk about it because I think I, I think I diverted the conversation a little, and, and there's so much uh, we could talk about uh, with the contrasting of, of, of different um, countries and in, in in this world context. Uh, Alexis uh, was able to offer a great article that is very relevant to our conversation today. And I'm sharing the screen here so that folks who are engaging in the podcast via video could see the the article that I'm referring to, the title of which is Cultural Stereotypes of Disabled and Non-Disabled Men and Women, Consensus for Global Category Representations and Diagnostic Domain. So very relevant to what we just uh have been talking about. And this article was written by Michelle R. Nario Redman from Reed College in Portland, Oregon, USA. And so Afir, uh you know, some of the things that uh, I think are important that are relevant for the conversation and, and we want to ask you about, um, uh, because you do a lot of work with teacher perceptions. And, and how some of the stereotypes uh, come through, if you will, in in teacher uh, perceptions and teacher education programs, and specifically mathematics. And so, just a quick rundown. I mean, the 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 article finds that uh, disabled folks are 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 stereotyped as uh, dependent, incompetent, and asexual, largely. And, and I mean, there are some really interesting findings here. But again, we just wanted to ask you, Afir, how how do you see some of these stereotypes playing out in the work that you do?
2: Yeah, so um, first of all, our work focuses on the teacher's perception affecting the behavior at the time when students are are participating in the class so it is about um how we can describe the perceptions uh as an inclusive ones or non-inclusive one when the teacher uh set a mathematical problem in this case and a student with disability raise their hand or try to present some results uh, either from uh, individual or group work and uh, then we try to create. Uh, scenarios. these kind of scenarios in going to ask the teacher's three question, first of all, uh, what comes to your mind after the participation of the students, or even before, if you just see the students are raising their hands, or you know that students is raising their hands, and students have uh, has a particular disability. What would concern mine is the first question, uh, and in that question, maybe uh, teachers honestly may uh think um, uh, many things related to the results um that are in the paper, uh, for example, uh, if the student has an unresponwered examples, then can like even relate not in the discourse course but in their mind. About that, students are very passive in being passive. So, for that reason, they won't participate. Or if they are participating, it's because all their classmates help them to, uh, have a, a response, but not a, a response that is from them. So, non inclusive perceptions uh, uh, are claiming that students are in the class, but they are not participating in the class, which is the difference between uh, the last two lenses of social interaction applying uh, in the educational system uh, between uh, integration and inclusion. Integration claims that the students are in the classroom, but it doesn't imply that students are contributors in the classroom. So, an inclusive perception claims that students with disabilities are not just uh members in the classroom but also contributors in the mathematical knowledge in the in this case um, contextualized in the mathematical classroom. So I think that many professors, if they don't have um, an inclusive perception have this idea of student with disability being uh, passive, incompetent, lazy, vulnerable. And if we, uh, for example, think about the social model of disability that we talked a little bit uh, before, teachers may think that uh, students with disabilities are vulnerable, and for that reason, they don't want it their participation because if they got wrong, it seems to the teachers another opportunity to be more vulnerable instead of an opportunity to make that misconception in a learning moment for everyone. Trying to don't shame the student, but also uh, try to see what the student is thinking and why I, are the reasons in his thinking that uh, makes him go to that direction, to that answer. So I believe that many teachers say, oh, no, he has, uh, for example, uh, mathematical disabilities or even uh, cerebral palsy. Uh, they think that uh, cerebral palsy can be related to the cognitive part. Uh, instead of the motor skills uh, and for the reason they say, okay, if I accept the participation of the student, I will say that it's right. Even the answer cannot be right, it, because they want to provide students confidence, but in the same way, they are not doing the effort of the developmental skills, which refers to the social model. So yeah, I think that even we don't have the power to hear what is, what the teachers are thinking in their minds, maybe the actions and questions like these three, what it comes to my mind, what you do next and why did you do uh can reflect if teachers are thinking. Uh, something uh related to the unsurfacing the article that claims that promotes that non inclusive perception or an inclusive perception uh made the student a contribute
1: yeah thank you so much Afir. I, I that's so, so fascinating work and i I can't wait to for others to learn about some of the things that you're doing and in for that for those results to come out and and thank you for making the connections to the stereotypes that that you will maybe looking for uh in, in, in the research that you're doing. We do want to honor your time. I know we we have spoken a really rich conversation here today and we can have this conversation for many, many more hours and, and we didn't get through um many of the questions we wanted to pose to you but but I think the this those who are engaging with the podcast would just be just so honored just to have the privilege to to think of, through some of the conversations we had today uh so to close off here is 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 there some uh, if people want to find out more about the work that you're doing um and and is there like a, a way they could connect with you
2: yeah um I have uh, my account in ResearchGate. When uh, I try to post uh, the writings, we do uh, articles, conference papers. So my name in ResearchGate is Ophir Romero Castro. Ophir uh, with two F. Uh, also on LinkedIn, the same name, Ophir Romero Castro. Uh, and in that place, we are. Well, I am like developing some publications about the work we are doing about perceptions.
3: All right, wonderful, okay. It's been a real pleasure for us to to learn with you.
0: Thank you so much for engaging with the DES podcast. We post new episodes every few weeks. The DES podcast is made possible and sustainable in solidarity with you and those who generously volunteer their time to converse with us. We hope you join us on our next episode.